and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. As NATO prepares for its annual summit in Vilnius on July 11th and 12th, one of the biggest topics on the agenda will be how to guarantee long-term security for Ukraine. For many, although not all, membership in the alliance appears unrealistic before the end of active fighting with Russia. If that continues to be the case, then the West will need to find an alternative arrangement that allows Ukraine to remain secure in the interim. While there is no consensus yet on what such an arrangement might look like, numerous proposals have emerged in recent months, including from both of our guests on today's episode. To discuss their ideas for what it will take to guarantee Ukraine's security, as well as the future of Western support for Kyiv more broadly, we're very pleased to have Liana Fix and Eric Chiramella on us with the podcast today. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Uh, for our listeners, brief introductions. Liana is a fellow for Europe at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's a historian and political scientist with expertise in German and European foreign and security policy, European security, transatlantic relations, Russia, and Eastern Europe. And Eric is a senior fellow in the Russia and Eurasia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where his work focuses on Ukraine and Russia. Prior to joining Carnegie, Eric served in the U.S. government as an intelligence analyst and policy official. Okay, so I think maybe let's set the table. And Liana, I'm going to go to you first. We are two weeks away from Vilnius about. Uh, There's been a lot of attention on the issue of security guarantees for Ukraine. Um, Give us a sense of where we are in this debate, and in particular, if you can talk about your sense of where various European capitals are on this question. And then, Eric, I'm gonna I'm gonna get your take on where Washington is too. But Liana, kick us off with what where you know. There's been a lot of conversations that we've all been a part of on this, and so kind of how has it evolved recently, and where are we now? Yeah, thanks so much, Andrea. Um, I think we are slowly um, getting closer to a kind of consensus or unified position for the NATO summit. So I think at the beginning, the positions were very much apart, especially when we had this dynamic that the United States and Germany, um, uh, those were the axes in the two powers which were opposing and very much pushing back against a NATO perspective for Ukraine, which goes beyond the Bukowski 2008 declaration, but would be something more concrete that was pushed forward by the Central and Eastern Europeans. Um, So what we see now is that NATO allies somehow come together um, around this idea of an Israel model for Ukraine, where Ukraine would get security support and where basically the Ukrainian army is the best security guarantee that Ukraine can have, a Ukrainian army which is supported and equipped by the West through long-term commitments and long-term structures. Interestingly, we had a dynamic where suddenly France, which was a little bit unexpected, seems to take the side of Central and Eastern Europeans and um, argue that a NATO perspective should not be excluded and is something which has to be part of the mix, which can be a tactical move. But many French colleagues say it actually represents a shift in Macron's thinking, who tries to get closer to Central and Eastern Europe, feeling that otherwise he becomes isolated in Europe. But there are still those, and there are ongoing discussions also between France, Germany, and Poland, there are still those who argue, even if we go for the Israel model, 
that is not enough without a NATO perspective, without some kind of commitment that after the fighting ends, Ukraine will become a NATO member because it could incentivize Russia to just try again and again and leave Ukraine in this kind of gray zone. So the agreement so far is, apart from a NATO-Ukraine Council and other comprehensive assistance packages, seems to be that NATO could um, could have a consensus on dropping the condition of a NATO membership action plan for Ukraine, which Ukraine never wanted, which would mean that if Ukraine becomes NATO member, it can jump directly to NATO membership like Finland and Sweden, which might be a way to facilitate consensus within the alliance, but it's still a little bit curious to drop a hypothetical um, criteria for becoming a NATO member if the alliance has not agreed on the outcome that Ukraine should become a NATO member. So it's a little bit a consensus that has been achieved, um, dropping this criteria without without sort of giving Ukraine what it actually wanted. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I mean, I guess, yeah, I don't know. Well, well, Eric, let's go to you first. And then I think, you know, the thing that I'm so interested in is a little bit of like a chicken and egg and kind of the dynamics between Germany, France, and the United States. And but anyway, Eric, let's go to you first. And then I really want to kind of dig into that, into what how we're all seeing it from the outside, what what what's going on um behind the scenes. But Eric, what's your sense of where we are in the debate in Washington? Uh thanks, Andrea. So, you know, Liana had a great laydown of of the situation. And um she's absolutely right that there seems to be this consensus forming around the idea of, of this kind of multilateral interim security framework that would be i would say inspired by the israel model not copied directly because there are a lot of dissimilarities including you know the nuclear asymmetry um but you know the idea that there would be this enduring codified commitment, in Ukraine's case, multilateral vice, in the Israel case, where it's just the United States, um, commitment to train and equip the Ukrainian armed forces with, um, you know, substantial kind of, uh, you know, technologies and capabilities that could match or offset Russian battlefield advantages. And so in the Israeli case, there's this now statutory requirement called qualitative military edge or QME. Um, which used to be kind of the guiding principle. Actually, it was a Cold War era guiding principle for NATO forces to offset the, you know, conventional, overpowering conventional, you know, numerical superiority of the Warsaw Pact forces. Um, and then this principle became applied to Israel throughout the decades, and then it was codified into law in 2008. And so now, you know, there's a requirement for every U.S. president to you know, repeatedly certified to Congress that arms sales to the Middle East don't impact um, Israel's qualitative edge over potential adversaries. And again, in this idea here, QME doesn't quite work because um, the edge that Israel has isn't something that you can clearly copy in the Ukrainian case. Um, so there are different ways of going about kind of codifying at least some principle of the idea that through kind of this sustained support, um, we can, you know, make the Ukrainian army more capable and sophisticated over time, and thus kind of even out these battlefield disparities that they have with the Russians, particularly on air power uh, and ammunition. So um, it seems to be that there is consensus forming around at least the idea of some sort of 
initial framework document that could be signed around the time of Vilnius, not at Vilnius, but on the margins, because my understanding is it wouldn't be a purely NATO instrument. It would be this kind of ad hoc coalition document with the United States, Germany, France, UK, Poland, and so on. And that would be kind of the general framing for a series of really substantive bilateral commitments. And the model, again, that I've heard used for the United States is the US-Israel MOU, which there have been a series of three of them each 10 years. Again, they pledge certain dollar amounts um, that each president will submit to Congress and so on and so forth. Um, something like that, that would show a real you know, committed intention to um, you know, arm the Ukrainians going forward. Uh, I think the big question is whether or not the administration is going to be able to secure a legislative, you know, action to make this legally codified, which I think is really, really critical, um, given that, you know, Putin's strategy seems to be um, to wait out this current administration and hope for a better outcome after the 2024 election. And I believe that there's substantial um, bipartisan support right now for Ukraine. And there's no reason why something couldn't be codified now and have that issue taken off the political agenda for the 2024 election, where, again, we even saw in recent polls that have just been released over the past few days, there's overwhelming support among Americans on a bipartisan basis to continue arming Ukraine in their um, you know, legitimate um, you know, war of survival and defense. Okay, that, this is great. Um, before we jump into more discussion to complete our table setting, Eric, um, where wh where is the debate in Ukraine? Like, can, like lay out Ukraine's position and what they're asking for. Because, um, I mean, th this clearly falls short, I think, of what they would have anticipated or at least hoped for in a best case. But, you know, I know you just had this conversation um, with uh, someone from Ukraine's presidential office this morning. He laid out some of what they had ho were hoping for. So it would be really helpful, I think, to hear that critical perspective also. Sure. So, yeah, I had a great conversation um, this morning with uh, deputy head of uh, Ukraine's office of the president, Igor Shovkva. Um, So listeners should take a look at that on the, the Carnegie um, YouTube site. Um, but basically, you know, his view was uh, Ukraine is realistic and they understand that they're not going to be able to enter NATO while the war is ongoing. And he repeatedly said that. But his position is, and, and President Zelensky's position is, that NATO should issue an invitation at Vilnius, and that that wouldn't trigger an automatic, you know, accession the next day. Obviously, there's a lot of steps that have to happen. It could happen in a year, like in Finland's case, or it could take several years, like in other cases. Um, you know, again, we had a bit of a back and forth about that because, you know, from my perspective, issuing an invitation now, when it's not clear how we could actually make good on that invitation makes it seem less credible. And so I think that's where, you know, the United States and Ukraine kind of have differing views about the importance of signaling. From the Ukrainian perspective, they see an invitation as a clear signal to Putin that he's lost in the long haul and that Ukraine is going to be in NATO and is never going to be in Russia's orbit. From the U.S. perspective, I mean, again, we see these things in a more... Uh, legalistic way, I would say, where if we're going to issue an invitation, we have to be ready to move on that 
in a sort of manner that's predictable. And at this point, since we can't see the end of the war, no one in the White House and State Department and DOD can envision Ukraine actually coming into the alliance. And so it's unfair and maybe disingenuous and ultimately not credible from the American perspective to issue an invitation. So that's where the sort of debate is, I would say. Um, you know, from the Ukrainian perspective, as far as I understand, these other kinds of multilateral security guarantees, commitments, whatever you call them, um, are definitely welcomed. Um, and so as long as it's not a replacement to NATO, but rather an interim framework that would bridge the period of time between now and ultimate accession, whenever the conditions become clear. Well, interesting. Uh, you know, uh, first of all, we have to make sure everyone understands that the Bucharest summit language is still there. That's agreed language. Uh, so NATO has said Georgia and Ukraine will become a member of NATO. So is that an invitation? Uh, that's more of a statement of intent. Uh, and they want to go beyond that. And so if they go beyond that at Vilnius, there's not going to be an invitation there uh, beyond uh, Bucharest. Uh, but there's a couple of things. One is whether they're going to do a map or not, membership action plan. Um, there's a That would be great if they said, no, 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 you don't need a map. Uh, we're going to go right into another kind of process, name it something else. But we're going to skip the map process because of the situation, et cetera, et cetera. That would be a great sign. I'm not sure if they're going to do that. But the but you know the Israeli um, the Israeli option locks them into something that doesn't look like a bridge or temporary. It looks like it's a replacement for going into NATO, and that certainly would be the signal to the Russians, because the Russians would be expecting something a bit more than. I mean, as as nice as the Israeli uh, uh, option might be, uh, you know, uh, lots of commitments about the qualitative edge, which is the key point here, by the way, is. NATO at Vilnius could offer a big assistance program that's not QME. You know, it could say we're going to do for the long term what we're doing right now, you know, et cetera. But Israel is different. That's the QME bit. That's a lot of money. And nations are going to have to put the money up to do that. It can't be just fall on us. So that's something to think about. But the big point here on Israel is uh, that will certainly be seen by Ukraine, I think, and others as a replacement, because that's a long term thing. You know, the MOUs for Israel, as you pointed out, 10 years, each one is 10 years. So if, if it's the Israeli uh, option that the allies go for, I, I think that's that's not uh, that's not very helpful. You could go for the porcupine uh, to use another one of these options, uh, which is which is which is like the Israeli option. You pump them up and make them very powerful to intend uh, to uh, to have a deterrent effect that way. But you don't enshrine it in all of these other things that make it look like a replacement for NATO, which is what the Israeli thing would be. So for me, it's very interesting uh, if, if, what they're going to do. They're, they're definitely in a pickle. Uh, I've been involved in every single enlargement, uh, beginning beginning with the big three. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so this is coming up with something that's different than Bucharest. Uh, and something that doesn't lock them into second-class citizenship that you cannot break years from now when they're ready. That would be hard for them to break uh, something of a longstanding Israeli option um, is going to be difficult. Uh, but I, I and I, uh, you know, and so that just is some comments on what you all said. I, I'm not going to, I'll present an idea a little bit later, but that's just my view and see what you guys think. 
I mean, just to add to that, I mean, the problem which I see is that NATO membership action plan is dropped without what you just outlined. So there's no alternative presented. So you're basically dropping something for not giving something in the perspective of NATO. And I think it's certainly the criticism that you hear from Ukraine that you just outlined, um, and also from Central Europe, which say, well, actually, do you want an Israel in your neighborhood? I mean, it's not that Israel is security-wise such a stable country, right? I mean, it's a country which continuously is at risk, which continuously needs to invest into missile defense, into its armed forces. So why would you not want a Poland at your borders, especially if, you know, um, Eastern right. enlargement, EU and NATO enlargement right. has been such a successful model. I mean, it has been the recipe for success throughout the last 20 years to enlarge EU together with NATO. I do think the downside of that is, I mean, the, the down, that's the real downside of not combining an Israel model with a NATO perspective. Um, and I think another argument, and Eric might correct me, that I think is also dominant in Washington and Germany is that it would make negotiations with Putin more difficult. So if you give Ukraine now a NATO perspective, how would you go into negotiations where you, Russia will probably want to say, well, NATO is not is not on the table? Um, and the other argument is that Putin might just continue fighting without end if a NATO membership perspective is what happens once the fighting but why, ends. But why does Russia get a veto? Why does Russia? I mean, the, I think the other question is you can also turn this around and say, well, might we not incentivize Putin and Putin's successes to fight again and again if we don't give a NATO membership perspective? So the question that we can prolong the war can also be framed the other way around. I think my concern really is that if we don't combine it with a NATO perspective now, we might not have the courage and the political will to do it later. Right. And I'm a little bit skeptical and, and curious to hear what, what Eric says about this, um, because I don't believe that the EU can be an alternative for Ukraine. I mean, EU membership and the Article 42 uh, 7 of, of, of the EU, it's just not what no. NATO can offer. It will never be. I mean, we just heard the Austrian chancellor again at the European Council saying, oh, we want to stay neutral. Please keep us out of everything that you're doing or offering Ukraine. So it is not a realistic alternative perspective, especially because EU enlargement and Ukraine's EU membership will have to be confined with a reform of the European Union, which will take ages if it is proceeded, um, uh, if it is if it's to proceed before Ukraine's membership. So then the question it was, is the alternative? And although I believe that a security pact is the right way to proceed sort of in the short term in a practical way, I wonder whether leaving out a kind of commitment to NATO is something that we might regret in the future. I agree with that. I agree with that. And, and that will help go beyond Bucharest. Eric, what are the, yeah, you jump in and maybe you know, again, like channeling where Washington is mm -hmm. to listen, understand um, what are some of the reasons, and, and maybe you've already said this, you said, because it, it may not be viewed as credible. Why do you think that that we've backed off, the allies have backed off from offering that something that goes beyond Bucharest and providing like the pathway with, you know, by issuing an invitation? What what are what are the key arguments that you hear for why we haven't been able to get there? Well, I mean, I don't think we've backed off so much as we've never approached it before. Um, I think it is it's inconceivable to a lot of people, I think, because you know, 
even if actual accession would take several years, um, the process, while the war is still ongoing, would force all of these uncomfortable decisions and scenarios on both Ukraine and the allies. And so, you know, I'll just lay out a few of them. So the first kind of scenario is that Ukraine has to keep fighting until it liberates every inch of its legal territory in order to enter NATO whole. And that could take many, many years and come at a huge cost. And it's impossible to predict at this point what resources would be required to do that. Number one, that's not ideal. Number two, Ukraine could enter NATO divided as West Germany did, but that would entail a de facto recognition of territorial partition for an indefinite amount of time. West Germany was, you know, people talk about it as this model of saying, well, there's no prohibition for a country that's divided. Okay, but people also don't mention that Chancellor Adenauer had to sign away East Germany and say, I mean, of course, this was realistically not going to happen either, but, you know, there was not going to be any military attempts to reunify the East and West, right, as a condition for NATO membership. Ukraine would have to do the same um, because NATO allies are not going to take Ukraine in where there's a possibility of a future Ukrainian counteroffensive that then would automatically draw you know, Ukraine as future member of NATO, the rest of the alliance in. So that's number two. It wouldn't be so, automatic. Understand that. You're talking about Article 5, which is not automatic. Well, so that's alliance, <laughs> number three here. The alliance could choose not to, you know, they could, the Ukraine could start a, a counteroffensive uh, and the alliance says, well, this doesn't fall under Article 5 for but us. But it would, so would use the credibility of NATO, right? Exactly. I mean, that, so that's, that's, that's probably the problem. That's right? the third so. scenario is if, if, you know, you didn't make this territorial issue clear, then NATO would somehow have to modify Article 5 in a clear territorial defense situation and say, oh, well, actually for Ukraine, we meant it as some other different thing. But no, we seriously mean it for Poland or the Baltics. And if there were this similar issue happened in Narva, we would definitely come to Estonia's aid, but we're not doing it in Ukraine. So we would totally rewrite the understanding of Article 5, which is a terrible outcome as well. Or the fourth scenario is NATO has to enter the war directly. None of those options are very good. And this gets to sort of Jim's point, which, you know, I would say that the Israel model isn't a replacement, but it just totally sidesteps all of these issues until we have a clearer sense for how the war is going to conclude and whether Ukraine is going to be willing to part with any territory that it hasn't reclaimed. Again, if Crimea is not back in Ukrainian hands and there's no pathway for Ukraine to retake it militarily, Ukrainian, you know, public is going to have to have a debate that they haven't yet had about whether or not it's worth it to enter NATO without Crimea or to wait until Crimea is part of Ukraine, recognizing that there's going to be this dilemma that's going to be forced on them at the moment of accession. So that's why it kind of like because there is no clear endpoint at this stage, it's very hard for American policymakers to feel like they're making a credible commitment if they said something much stronger than Bucharest at this point. Because it's like, again, in a very hazy future that could be years, if not many decades away. But I think they're just to. I just wanted to quickly come in on the Germany example because I'm a little bit more optimistic here. He he speaks <laughs> the German in the group, 
Um, because obviously, I mean, the West Germany never accepted East Germany, right? I mean, we had then in the 70s, the process of German-German talks and so on. But Germany never, West Germany never accepted that East Germany is not part of, of, of Germany. And it always remained a part of the constitution of the basic law. It was called the basic laws. Germany didn't want to give itself a constitution because it said we're not united, so we shouldn't have a constitution, just a basic law. It remained always part of the basic law and of articles and the basic law to reunite. Um, and I think the greatest challenge there is that in the example of Western East Germany, the borders were clearly delineated, right? And it was very clear those were the occupation zones and this is where the Soviet Union is, this is where we are. And I think we would have to come to this stage in the war in Ukraine when we could think about making clear commitments or giving Ukraine an NATO membership perspective, when we have a kind of armistice, which where it's sort of clear on both sides that there's no intention to continue a counteroffensive from Ukraine's side, from Russia's side, for whatever reasons, hopefully no intention. And then we could come in with that model that Ukraine says, well, we don't accept East Ukraine, but um, for the sake of NATO membership, we do it. And so I think we should not entirely um, leave this out. And again, my concern would be, I mean, we never had a moment where we have such a strong political will in the transatlantic alliance. So my concern would be, let's say, if we say we'll talk about it when the war ends in eight years, in 10 years, the war comes to an end, there will be no discussion anymore about NATO membership because everyone will be used to the status quo and no one will want to change the status quo for something which is far reaching. So it's always in these historical moments of dramatic change that you can take dramatic steps, that you can go for German reunification, that you can go for Eastern enlargement. But this moment can pass and then later you will never have this moment again. And then you might, might regret it at a later point. Um, if it comes out that, you know, Ukraine will have to stay in Israel for, I don't know, 20, 30 years, and it all will also remain a risk for Europe to have an Israel on its borders in a constant situation of conflict. I guess, I, I mean, I just, again, Eric, I'm going to push you a little bit more and, and Liana to the, you know, just to, our, to, to be able to explain to listeners what you're hearing. I mean, I don't, what is the downside of offering an invitation for Ukraine to join NATO once the fighting ends. I mean, again, like this goes back to like, why can't it be both? Why isn't it the security guarantees while the fighting is continuing with this NATO perspective that's attached onto it, as Liana is saying? I mean, I think my my sense is of that a lot of this is just opposition in the White House and in Washington. And I get, you know, what I hear or have heard previously is, that really it's President Biden himself and that he has been so adamant that United States troops will never be involved in Ukraine that he can't ever really imagine getting to that Article 5 commitment because he would never envision putting U.S. troops in harm's way in Ukraine. So is it is it just a fundamental opposition? No, it will never happen that you still think is the prevailing view of folks in the White House in Washington, or is there I, is that changing in any way, Eric? I don't know what your sense is. I mean, I, I don't know that it's, you know, personalized to President Biden. I think it's extremely widely shared pretty much among all senior U.S. policymakers that there's no credible way to issue an invitation now if we have no way to know how and under what circumstances we'll take them in and issue an Article 5 guarantee. 
because we can't structurally issue an Article 5 guarantee now to a country that is actively at war with Russia, because then we become at war with Russia. Or we, have to, or we have to rewrite Article 5 to mean something else, or we have to make them, you know, pledge that they're not going to, you know, launch any military. It's not like a we can say, OK, we'll protect you here. You can launch your offensives and then everything's fine, because as soon as Ukraine launches an offensive in the future, there's going to be a counter reaction and then we will be drawn in. So while you have 400,000 Russian troops occupying Ukrainian territory and everyone's on not even hair trigger alert, they're shooting at each other actively. It's not even imaginable. And again, I just to be clear, I do think Ukraine belongs in NATO in the long haul. I mean, I, I do firmly support Ukraine as part of Euro-Atlantic security organizations. I just think that tactically, having focused on it now to the exclusion of all other things that could be implemented immediately, we've done a bit of a disservice to Ukraine by putting out this totally unrealistic thing. And then the intellectual conversation on what can be done now um, has been sorely lacking. And again, I just to get back to this, the Israel model thing. Um, I think we end up getting a little too wrapped up in actual comparisons to Israel. Again, this has nothing really to do with Israel itself. Um, this is just a structural kind of legal, political, you know, policy framework that we happen to use with Israel. It could be any other country that we have this agreement with. Um, but, uh, you know, what I think the key that we should think about is this is this is about Article Five is deterrence by punishment. Right. So it's the the act of deterring adversarial action by threatening a way worse punishment in the future, triggered by whatever action the adversary took. But there's another theory of deterrence, and the two of them work hand in hand, deterrence by denial, which is about creating enough of an obstacle in the way physically present. Right. Usually substantial, you know, force in theater that makes it impossible or overwhelmingly costly for an adversary to achieve political objectives by military force. And so that's what we're talking about here is instead of focusing the entire conversation about building a deterrence by denial framework and putting Ukraine into, you know, Article 5 and all of that, what we're instead doing is really fleshing out this deterrence by denial, which can be done on an iterative, continuous basis, and it gets stronger and stronger with time to the point where three to five years from now, again, if we've had these solid long-term capabilities planning conversations with the Ukrainian general staff, we will have built them into such a credible force that at that point, you know, I think it's very plausible that the Kremlin could say, all right, there's no way we're going to run past this anymore. Like we cannot beat the Ukrainian army. They don't think that right now, but they could think it if we make these kind of structural commitments. And then you could start to see a change in Russian policy that then later enables the conversation about NATO membership to happen and opens the door to it. So again, I don't see them as mutually exclusive. I, I think I would very much, them. yeah, I, I think I just agree. I think we would very much agree with Eric. I think one could also make the counter argument that even if Ukraine's army becomes stronger and so on, Russia will remain capabilities to sort of attack Ukraine again and again, even if they are weaker. So the argument could be that as long as the case is not closed from Russia's perspective, every Russian leader will be tempted. I mean, and the other question is probably also, is there a middle way of saying that Ukraine can become a member once the fighting stops as a political commitment 
without combining it now with Article 5. I don't know if that's what, what you wanted to, to say, Andrea. And I think I would agree that it's very much the US, which is, I mean, Germany and Olaf Scholz is following the US there. I mean, <laughs> that's what they've basically done throughout this war. So it's very much dependent on the US. And I think if if it's about, you know, if someone says, oh, it's about transatlantic unity. No, I mean, the leadership is clearly coming from the US. And as long as there's no sign from the US that any kind of political signal, even if it's just the step beyond Bucharest, which says once the fighting ends or once the war ends, is not acceptable to Washington, it will not be acceptable to uh, any European. I think that's the sweet spot, though, Liana. And like, that's the piece that we're missing is like, if it doesn't go beyond Bucharest, my worry is that just the kind of credible security commitments to Ukraine um, actually sends a a signal to Putin that we're not willing to come to Ukraine's defense in a, in a meaningful way, that it, it signals that our resolve isn't strong enough. And I think this was part of your conversation that you had this morning with the Ukrainian official, Eric, which is like, then they remain stuck in this gray zone. And that will always invite future aggression. And so, I mean, to me, that's that's what we're missing. I agree it's not either or. Um, and, and I agree, Eric, that we've kind of done a disservice by only focusing on the Ukraine piece and not really fleshing out this these other security commitments that you and Liana have laid out. But I feel like that in absence of some sort of political commitment that goes beyond Bucharest also does Ukraine a disservice by signaling to Russia that we're not real, our whole heart really is not in it. Um, so also, I don't know. That's no, go ahead. Signal, that signal also goes to the Ukrainian people. Um, you know, they've, they've been in this gray zone since 2008. They had the Budapest memorandum, uh, which totally screwed them. You know, so there's, there's probably a lot of cynicism there anyway. And so if Vilnius comes uh, and we have, our, you know, the, a great summit and photo ops and the family photo and all that stuff. Uh, and we roll out that they're going to be in the, the NATO, NATO Ukraine council instead of commission. Uh, and, um, and we're going to promise a lot of things that a lot of countries aren't going to be able to afford to do in terms of assistance packages, if they're going to be looking at that. Um, and then we, and then in the communique or in the special statement or however they're going to talk about a political commitment uh, between NATO or between NATO allies and Ukraine, and it really is a restatement uh, of of Bucharest. I mean, that's a, that is a hell of a uh, of a signal to the Ukraine people. Um, Putin, notwithstanding, I mean, the Putin might sit back and chuckle and say, you know, that they really don't have it in their hearts to bring in Ukraine. But even more important is the Ukrainian people and the guys that are fighting. You know, uh, because that interpretation will be very well known and spread around, you know, through the talking head, you know, in the media. It's so and it's and I, I that's what I'm really concerned about. It's going to be all hat and no cattle, if you will. But can I ask, when, oh, go ahead. Can I can I just come back on that? Because, again, what concretely does an invitation do to enhance Ukraine security? It doesn't provide anything. It leaves them still in the gray zone in this period of vulnerability. And I just, I think that actually that has the potential to send the complete opposite message to Putin, which is, you know, got to keep the war going for as long as possible. Because now, you know, really what's at stake as, is me disrupting this NATO membership accession process. And what what NATO is communicating and Ukraine are communicating is that 
Ukraine can only have security in NATO, and therefore I have to do everything possible to block it. Whereas, again, with this other model, which I'm not saying is an alternative, but it's something that could be done now, it it sort of sidesteps that whole thing and shows, well, actually, security is a much more complicated thing than whether or not you're in a military alliance. Actually, Ukraine can significantly enhance its security, A, and B, significantly enhance its ability to impose costs on Russia through this other model. And that starts to get Putin to recalculate sooner. Well, right. I, you know, no, I, I, I'm not discounting that at all. I think at Vilnius, they're going to have to come up with something, uh, whether it's called the porcupine uh, or whether it's called Israel, the Israel model. But they're going to have to really make the point that, that uh, the alliance is going to really pump up uh, the Ukraine military. Although we haven't done a, a great job with that now, the way we've been you know, putting penny packets of equipment out there. So we'd have to improve what we're doing and all the allies will have to get involved and there's going to be a lot of money in it. And for sure, we're going to have to do that for sure. Uh, and so, um, you know, so that's part of it. But but then uh, in terms of Putin, if he if we say something like, and once the fighting ends, we're going to start talking to you guys about bringing you into NATO, we're going to, you know, then then what Putin says is, it goes back to your point, uh, I'm not going to let the fighting end. I'm going to keep it going because I know once the fighting ends, uh, that's when the NATO uh, membership is going to become suddenly an option. So, um, you know, but at a minimum for Vilnius, they're going to have to put in the assistance, no matter what they call it. Uh, but the trick is going to be, what can they say uh, that's beyond Bucharest that um, that talks about NATO membership that at the same time doesn't give an incentive for Putin to keep fighting because he, because if we say once the fighting ends, we're going to do this, he's going to say the fighting's not going to end and therefore you're not going to get to to a NATO thing. So how can you, you know, how you can you thread that needle? That That's the tough that's, thing. I'm, I'm not sure, Jim, that's really, I think we have to be very careful in our arguments about our policy, not always to take what Putin thinks and what he will react as sort of an argument. Our discussion think, right here because, our discussion right here has been around what will Putin think. So. Exactly. And I think this you can make both arguments. You can make the exact argument that a NATO membership will keep Putin fighting, but you can also make the exact argument that a non-NATO membership will keep them fighting because they will always be tempted. So, yeah. I mean, I think it's, I mean, I would lean towards the first one, but I think it's very fair to say that there are also good arguments for the second one. So perhaps we have to move away from this kind of trying to get into Putin ha in Putin's head and really think about what options do we have at our disposal at the moment. And I think the argument would certainly be, let's try to get the maximum out of the options that we have at our disposal. And obviously that's difficult in an alliance. I mean, Andrea, you and I both heard that um, Germany even uh, didn't want to repeat the Bucharest, <laughs> Bucharest statement as a basis. So, I mean, there is also reluctance in the alliance. And it's not only Germany and the United States. Other states are also hiding behind Germany and the United States. The question is, are we pushing the envelope far enough for Vilnius? And I think the security pact that I think Eric and I very much agree in, in how important that is, 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 is definitely something that has to be in place. It has to be in place now. It should be not part of negotiations in the future. Right. It has to be in place now to be an incentive for Putin and, I mean, to, to work as a political element of the counteroffensive, right? So, I mean, this all has to come. 
But then really the question is, what is the space that we have beyond that to push it a little bit further? And would be the little bit further saying that Ukraine has a NATO perspective um, once the war ends be too much or would it be something that we could and should do right now? And there's the alliance is split also. There's a mistake to say that it's that people are hiding behind Germany and the U.S. There's a half the alliance wants to do this. Poland, the three Balts, Romania. I mean, so there's so unity is important, as you say. To get to unity, they're going to have to draft something that takes into account reluctance, which is there, Berlin, U.S., but then you've got, uh, and you and probably including the U.K. with Central Europe and others who want to be much more forward-leaning. So they've got to come up with something that'll bridge those two. Um, just to give a, like, put a little more uh, meat on the bones, I, I don't think we've complete completely covered this in this conversation, just to stick with the kind of security commitments that you both have written on. Give us a sense of what you're talking about, because I think we we certainly would all agree that that's the minimum that has to be done. And that so what is exactly, what are the kind of proposals that you both have put out there? And I'm very curious to hear how those ideas have been received. You want me to start? Can... Oh, go ahead, Niana. <laughs> go ahead, you go first. Um, no, I mean, just I'll just make three quick points. And I think um, Eric has a lot more detail to add. I think the most important point is really a multi-year commitment by Ukraine's partners to arming Ukraine. Um, it has to be a commitment which is matched with the capabilities of Europe when it comes to its defense industrial base. So the kind of partnerships that we see now, the German industry is, for instance, doing um uh, doing work in Ukraine is exactly what we need. We need a close cooperation there. We also need a kind of formalization of the structures because the kind of Rammstein meeting that we have now, I mean, it's wonderful. And I still can't believe it's still going on that all these defense ministers meet regularly in person, right? And agree. I mean, it's a level of commitment, which I haven't seen. I mean, perhaps during the corona pandemic, you've seen ministers meeting so often together. But it's not something which is sustainable for like five years or 10 years. I mean, it's just too much. You, you need formalized structures where you don't have to agree at every meeting about what are you going to send next. So this kind of formalization of the support, this kind of long-term support and the matching with the defense base. And I think Eric has added in his piece, really this, or mentioned this really important part about the legal, legal codification, which um, I think especially in the US is important because Europeans will ask the question, well, great, what if we do that and we have US elections in 2024 and then we stand there with our commitments and the US changes tax, so yeah. Yeah, um, Andrea, I mean, my my proposal was also extremely similar to Liana's and had you know a lot of the same elements, um, which include this kind of multi-year structured commitment um, whether in the form of a, a, an MOU from the U.S. side um, or whatever other instrument. But the the key here is to get away from this ad hoc, like, here's a billion dollars this week, then we have no idea what's coming next, and then let's throw another billion dollars over the transom the next, you know, two weeks later. It needs to be structured around kind of the reverse, where you have, first of all, a long-term capabilities planning discussion, which is what does Ukraine want its force of the future to look like? What kinds of key capabilities are going to be anchoring this force? What does Ukraine need in terms of, you know, fourth generation air force? What does Ukraine actually need in terms of layered air defense, layered and integrated air defense? What does it need for coastal defense? 
So you have these planning conversations between Ukraine and its key partners, and then you identify capabilities that would fulfill those requirements, and then you source them from different countries. And this is all part of a structured kind of happening in bilateral channels, but also part of this multilateral framework. Um, and so that's sort of the multi-year kind of commitment, again, with money attached to it. The legal codification, like Liana mentioned, is really critical in the U.S. case. It's less important, I think, in European countries because there's no major domestic divides in any countries of significance. Um, and because most of them work in a parliamentary system, it's it's clearer where the different parties stand on everything, right? But here, I think in our case, we do need some sort of law in place. Um, and we probably won't get to a full-blown treaty because um, it's going to be too unwieldy to negotiate. But we could get to something like a Taiwan Relations Act, you know, which has stood the test of time for more than four decades. And something like that that would show kind of the general principles on a bipartisan basis of long-term U.S. support for Ukraine's self-defense, right? So something like that um, in terms of the legal codification. Liana is totally right, and I agree on the, the importance of the defense industrial component. It's not just about ramping up our defense industries. It's about taking Ukraine's kind of know-how and significant um, expertise on defense manufacturing, finding a way to integrate that more into the European defense industrial um, you know, supply chain. And you know, the recent announcement of Rheinmetall to form this joint venture with Ukuroboromprom is a pretty significant step forward. And I think it potentially shows an indicative direction of where Western defense firms are going. But again, they need that all to be embedded within a long-term commitment because no one's going to start up these new new production lines if they think, oh, well, you know, the war might be over in a year or two and we don't know what the West staying power is. It all needs to be structured with a very clear overarching commitment that we're in this for the long haul, right? Um, and so that's the defense industrial piece. I uh, very much agree with Liana as well on the kind of formalization of the structures and coordination mechanisms. I think Rammstein, again, has been a great um, way to kind of get pledges from different countries and have this high level touch, you know, every once in a while. Um, but we need something that's more formalized and sustainable. And so in my paper, I propose something that's sort of more like the NAC, which would be kind of a, a regular consultative body where parties to this multilateral pact would have representatives who ensure that the members are meeting their obligations. They ensure that they're coordinating with the Ukrainian side, again, that everything's running smoothly. And this doesn't have, in my view, it shouldn't be attached directly to NATO because then it's, you know, embedded in this unwieldy, in my view, consensus-driven decision-making. And I think that's bad for the Ukrainians. They need more flexibility. That's sort of the genius of Rammstein, where, again, countries say what they can do, but you don't need to reach consensus at 54 or however many countries there are. It's whoever can do whatever they need. Um, so this sort of coordination mechanism. The last point I would say, which we touched on briefly, is the relationship between a security pact and EU accession. And I, I hear Liana loud and clear that, you know, for Ukraine to actually join the EU, there's going to need to be pretty significant um, internal EU structural change. And that's probably going to take a long time. But I wouldn't underestimate the power of the security guarantee of the EU. And I get that Article 42.7 is not the same as Article 5, because the United States is not involved. But at the same time, 
almost all members of the EU are also members of NATO. And I think that in the future, if Ukraine were a member of the EU, I think any Russian leader in the Kremlin is going to have a hard time making an argument that they can attack EU territory without a very significant risk of ending up in a direct war with NATO, which is something that Putin has assiduously avoided. I mean, we talk about him as this maniac, but he hasn't hit NATO territory because he is afraid of Article 5. And I think even though Article 5 is not attached formally to the EU, the fact that you have this huge overlap in membership um, means that effectively, I think Article 5 applies in probably, Russian decision-making. Mm, probably a little bit more skeptical, as all Europeans are more skeptical of their own achievements. So often, it wasn't enough for... Uh, to the shame. Either. I mean, that's what I, that is what I wanted to say. I mean, Finland and Sweden is, I mean, the example to say, oh, well, the EU is not enough. I mean, the, I think my concern would be that relying on the EU pledge, if one wants to call it that way, makes it more ambiguous and waters down the Article 5 commitment. Because we would have a process when a EU member becomes attacked, then one would have EU consultations about that with all the EU member states who, for neutrality reasons, would you know definitely not, we would not see this kind of consensus on invoking um, 42.7, which then sort of places the, I mean, sort of dilutes NATO's Article 5. If the EU cannot agree, why should the NATO Article 5 come in in that situation? So I think it's um, NATO Article 5 just as strong as, and I mean, the United States is not behind the EU. So I think this kind of process would rather be dangerous because it would dilute the NATO, NATO Article 5, um, the, the clearness of NATO's Article 5. I think at some point in the future, I mean, if we see the changes in the European Union that we've seen now in the last two years, I mean, if that continues, if we really see an effort um, like the Estonian president Kaya Kallas has now called for in a political op-ed to really invest into European defense, um, to build up financial structures that can help Europeans to develop joint capabilities. And if in 10 to 15 years we have a European Union that is able to do medium-sized missions in its neighborhood without the United States, then I think the EU at some point becomes a force where one can think about, you know, what does it mean for Ukraine? But still, the question would always be open about French uh, France's nuclear arsenal, which has always, I mean, with Macron has been very yeah, ambiguous in his statements. I mean, at some point saying, oh, it also applies to the EU at some point saying, oh, no, it's only about France. Um, so that's that's not far enough evolved. I would not exclude that it can evolve. But I think for Ukraine to bet on that would be dangerous. And they would probably not want to wait 15 years, although given if sort of the reform process within the EU takes so long, they might have to. I think we could go on for a very long time. I think we're just about at time. Um, I mean, it, these are not easy issues. And I'm really um, thankful to both of you for all the work that you've done in laying out kind of a vision of what the security guarantees piece of this looks like. Um, and, you know, uh, there's lots of views out there about you know, where Ukraine's rightful place should be. I mean, you have Secretary uh, Secretary General Stoltenberg saying Ukraine's rightful place is in NATO. And I very much agree with that. But how you get from here to there, I think, is where where the, the difficulties arise. And so I think we need more work from both of you and others out there and figuring out what that path looks like. But Jim, any anything you want to say at the end? 
Oh, yeah, a lot, but we've run out of time. But what I will say, though, is um, they're going to have to do something and say something at Vilnius. We've run out of time on this. I don't think they can. we can write up more papers and have more discussions uh, and, and have Vilnius just produce a peanut uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, talking about how do we get there from here, as Liana was saying, as, uh, you know, or you, Andrea, um, you know, what Sekjen Sek saying, Ukraine needs to be in NATO. Well, how do we get there from here? Uh, they're going to have to say something along those lines uh, at Vilnius. I think assistance packages, as we've talked about it here, again, whatever name you want to use for them, I think that will be part of it. I'm, I'm doubtful that nations are going to put in the money uh, that would need to be put into it. And so it's going to fall on us. And that's a whole other political problem for us. But at Vilnius, they're going to have to say something in a communique. And, and, and as we've determined, talking among ourselves here, um, it's going to be really hard to say something that isn't a lot of Diplo speak or Brussels speak. I've, I've negotiated communiques at NATO for years. It's hard to get something, particularly when the alliance is split the way it is. Yeah. Uh, and that's going to be tough, particularly if the U.S. leadership is going to be um, not real strong on this or murky on this. Honestly, I don't know where the U.S. is on this. Uh, frankly, I've heard different things from different people. I just don't know. Uh, and we might not know until the Vilnius is right on our front doorstep uh, because there's other things that the uh, White House is having to work on. But it's going to be the White House that's going to have to provide this because I don't think state or DOD or U.S. mission or anybody else uh, is going to have uh, a lot to say until the White House finally decides how they want to put this. And then we'll see where everybody comes down on it. It's going to be it's, Vilnius is probably one of the most important summits um, in terms of these kinds of issues that we've had in a long time, more than Madrid. Madrid was all about aspirations, and Vilnius is now putting, uh, you know, meat to the bone here. Uh, and uh, both we haven't even talked about the rollout of the of the big uh, NATO defense plan, which isn't really the topic of this this uh, podcast. But anyway, that's just a couple of things. We'll see what happens at Vilnius. So we're gonna like have to save us all. Uh, that was my idea. Perhaps surprisingly, <laughs> in contrast to everything that he's done in the past, Macron will save us all with his newfound love and passion for Central and Eastern European positions, and find a consensus <laughs> wording in the in the conclusions. So perhaps not. a good drafter and someone that's better <laughs> than the, the Bucharest drafter who did the communique there. We need a good drafter that can come up with some language that means something more to the Ukrainians than. Uh, than the Bucharest language did. We've got that's what we've got to have, and a good assistance package, Eric, with a lot of the uh, what you were talking about there. Uh, and um, let's just see what they come up with. Yeah, well, I think we'll have to get this group together again and take stock of what happened, and then where we need to go to the very historic seventy fifth uh, summit here in Washington D.C. So that'll mm -hmm. be also. A big moment. So, um, Liana and Eric, thanks so much for doing this. And I think we will do it again soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.